I can't believe how many Zoom conversations that we're all doing. And it's not the same as face-to-face. -face. We're even doing it socially. I'm getting better at uh, making cocktails. <laughs> <laughs> One benefit of all this, right? My domestic skills haven't improved, but uh, <laughs> I never had many to start with, so the bar was low. Well, you know, you're out changing the capital markets as we know it in healthcare tech. So you got a good excuse. Yeah, that's what I tell my husband. <laughs> Welcome to House Calls, where we get to talk to senior investment bankers from Kane Brothers, a division of KeyBank Capital Markets Incorporated. I'm your host, Dave Johnson, CEO of Foresight Health and the author of The Customer Revolution in Healthcare, delivering kinder, smarter, affordable care for all. I also co-author a monthly thought leadership article with a rotating cast of Kane Brothers senior bankers. In each piece, we do a deep dive on a fascinating sector of the dynamic healthcare industry. This month, our article is titled Health Tech to the Rescue, Combating COVID-19 with Virtual Care and Predictive Analytics. It's an amazing story of how tech companies, many of them startups, have shown up just in time to support and bolster a health system that's truly under siege. Today, I'll be talking with my co-author on the article, Jill Fru, Managing Director of Kane Brothers. Jill leads Kane Brothers healthcare technology practice. She joined the firm in 2006 and has over 25 years of experience advising both public and private companies in a variety of M&A, capital raising, and strategic advisory transactions, including working with organizations like American Well, CVS, GuideWell, Red Card Systems, and United Health. I love talking to Jill because healthcare tech takes us to such interesting places. Welcome to House Calls, Jill, where the bankers are always in. Thanks, Dave. Really excited about today's discussion. Yeah, I think we're going to have some fun. Anyway, uh, back in uh, ancient history, let's say January, when we were finalizing our Kane Brothers editorial calendar for 2020, we decided like we did last year, it would be really timely to write a piece with you about what had come out of the HIMSS conference which then was scheduled for March. Then as the date got closer, the coronavirus began spreading globally and ultimately led to the cancellation of the HIMSS conference. But it was still an eye-opener uh, when the largest healthcare event in the country canceled. So flash forward a month to where we are now, uh, and we're all sheltering in place, well, really all over the world. You happen to be in New York City, the epicenter of the COVID pandemic. <laughs> And the healthcare industry, as we know it, has been completely disrupted on every level. And by the way, not just healthcare, pretty much everything's been disrupted on every level. There's all kinds of new language, you know, flattening the curve, social distancing, PPE. And we're talking more about ICU beds and ventilators than ever before to go along with an economy in absolute freefall. Why don't you give us sort of your personal circumstances and then more broadly, the industry as a whole? Sure. Well, um, obviously, New York has been the uh, the epicenter of the crisis. So I've been had a front row seat to, to this whole experience. Thankfully, the data is improving and the admission rates are coming down. Unfortunately, the, the death rates are still at extraordinary levels. I think we lost over 800 of our, of our residents just yesterday. But uh, the data is looking better. I've watched a lot of the models that everybody has become familiar with. And I've been relieved to see, you know, a lot of improvements on a kind of day-to-day -day and week-to-week -week basis. But it's certainly um, been a life-altering event for, I think, for I think all of us. And in fact, you mentioned HIMSS, you know, in retrospect, um, it seems like such an insignificant 
event, given the magnitude of the issues that we're all now facing, really at every level in our life. Yeah, right. And I remember, you know, that was just kind of beginning of a, a cascade of events. I remember a couple of days later, the NBA canceled its season. The next thing you know, the schools are, are canceled, not essential businesses. We're closing. We're all setting up our home offices and uh, getting familiar with, with Zoom technology. And I think I knew pretty quickly that life as we knew it was going to change. Yeah, for unfortunately a, a fairly long period of time. So yeah, it's been uh, quite a change for I think all of us at many levels. Yeah, let's dive into the tech a little bit and what's been happening there, and and your perspective uh, as someone who really sort of sees around the corners about what's the promising technology that's coming, but also now can talk about how technology that's been developed and promising for a while is really now getting applied. So in many areas of healthcare banking, business is at a temporary standstill. And in many aspects of the healthcare industry, we're talking about traditional models being suddenly overwhelmed and overturned. You just look at some of the issues related to access and data. But in the healthcare tech sector, the area you focus on, the story has often been the opposite. In our darkest hour, it's health tech to the rescue. In the article that you and I wrote, which which had that in its title, we talk about a number of companies that are bridging the sudden gaps in healthcare delivery and data transmission. Even so, the rapidity of the adoption is really something to behold. In many industries, if you build a better mousetrap, the world beats a path to your door. In healthcare, it seems you need some type of sword of Damocles hanging over your head, whether it's in the form of sweeping legislation or a crippling mm-hmm. global pandemic before the industry moves. But the industry is moving now, and in some cases, there's almost elastic demand for tech services. Why don't you elaborate on that topic for us? Just give us the 60,000-foot view uh, of what you're seeing and, and how that's starting to play out. Yeah, be happy to. Yeah, it's um, it's unfortunate that it took a pandemic, right, for really consumers to more fully embrace a lot of the digital and virtual tools and technologies that have been available for many years and for the regulators to reduce some of the barriers that have really limited growth um, over time. You know, post-COVID, and I think the world in pre-COVID and post-COVID now, Mm -hmm. I think the utilization and adoption of a lot of these solutions will be at a fundamentally different level for a sustained period of time. The coronavirus has just been an extraordinary catalyst for change and something that I think is transforming the healthcare industry right in front of our eyes. So I don't think there'll be a back to normal. Um, I think once the crisis is over, I think the industry will look quite different and, and in many ways in a, in a better way. Yeah. yeah I think the, the other thing that coronavirus has done is revealed a lot of the inadequacies and gaps in our healthcare system. You know, the technology for telehealth, which has probably been in the headlines now, obviously, in a, in a significant way for the past couple of months, but that's a technology that's existed for, you know, really since almost 2005. Mm-hmm at different levels of sophistication and pretty modest uptake to date. And I think since 2005 till recently, like one out of every 150 primary care visits was done through telehealth and like one of every five or 10,000 specialist visits was done through telehealth. And due to the, the coronavirus, it's, it's become mainstream almost overnight. So it's been uh, interesting to see how this has been a catalyst for, for I think in some ways good change. Unfortunately, it took a a crisis for, for it to occur. Yeah. And, you know, the remarkable thing about telehealth is the way most companies perform telehealth. It's really a replication of a doctor's visit in virtual form, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. That they tend to be 18 to 20 minutes long and it's just done 
in front of a computer rather than in person. And so we're, we've been so locked into the doctor's office visit that that still predominates. Somebody told me we had a billion visits in ambulatory centers and doctor's offices last, last year. Yeah, it really has. And I think um, just the level of innovation that's come as well. I mean, there's the traditional telehealth model, as you described, that everybody is quite familiar with. I think there's a broader universe of solutions that I, I speak of more as kind of virtual health. And I think as a result of the, the crisis, we've seen some of the more innovative healthcare systems, many of which we, we work with here at Kane Brothers, yeah. develop kind of unique and kind of new use cases for virtual health across some of the different care settings, just urgent care, intensive care, first responders, monitoring. So I think they've been, again, out of almost, you know, kind of a, a sense of survival, have found a way to use the technology in a way to, to deal with one of the issues. And, you know, some of the, the systems we're seeing using basically telehealth intake programs to minimize contact between patients and providers. Huh. So I think the, the, there's been an extension of kind of telehealth in a traditional sense to more kind of finding ways to virtually interact with healthcare uh, givers and caretakers and the, and the patients in whatever setting they may be in. I think, yeah, we've only really scratched the surface. And one of the heroes of our story was this company, Zipnosis, which most people probably haven't heard of, but they've been around for quite a while. Mm -hmm. So they white label their telemedicine capabilities to health systems, and they have different grades of contact depending on the need for the service. But fully 90% of what they do is asynchronous. So they have logic trees built into the interface between the, the patient and the and the computer that asks questions and then based on the answers, it goes to the next step and doesn't take long to identify the symptoms and do a preliminary diagnosis. And then the person finishes up, a note gets sent to a, a professional caregiver, either a nurse practitioner or a physician, and they have a certain amount of time to get back, agreeing with the diagnosis or changing it, and if there is a prescription needed, you know, actually filling it. And the the time to do that on average uh, per visit is only a minute and a half, whereas a, a typical telemedicine visit would be 18, 20 minutes. And ZIP on March 7th did 700 visits, on March 12th did 98,000 visits. <laughs> so maybe you could just talk about the type of, of potential that technology offers to scale not only quickly, but massively and generate enormous value in the process. Yeah, the Gnosis is obviously really uniquely suited as far as their ability to handle the kind of the volume of screening required dealing with a pandemic. So just the clinical capacity that that type of model creates and the ability to provide rapid updates into the field, um, not to mention virtual care, which is kind of localized and obviously you're keeping patients out of the clinic. So I do think that's kind of a, a next generation approach and it's pretty compelling as far as the benefits that both health plan and health system customers can realize as a result. Yeah, Jill, are there any other kind of unique models out there like Zipnosis that have the potential to really disrupt the way telemedicine happens? I, I mean, I'm thinking back a few years when we went to the uh, tele-ICUs, mm-hmm. for example, and in bunkers, you could not only run them more cost-effectively from a centralized location, it also meant having uh, real expertise uh, at disposal time it needed to go and uh, real-time monitoring and uh, lots of times things got missed or mistakes got made. So looking out at, at the telehealth um, you know, space generally, what, what's either here or right around the corner that has the same potential as asynchronous uh, telehealth visit 
I think behavioral, yeah, behavioral mental health, particularly given the issues that people are going to be facing as a result of of this crisis, I think there's going to be greater demand. And there's been, you know, a lot of interest, a lot of new startup companies that have been focused in that area and more established players like a Lavango who we've, we've worked with have been very successful in mental health solutions, all being done remotely and, you know, telephonically and, and by video. You know, you mentioned uh, tele-ICU, advanced ICU is a company who's a leader in that space too. And again, I think the coronavirus has just put a spotlight on some of those solutions that again have historically not, not been mainstream. I think it will become uh, the primary means of delivering that sort of care for a variety of reasons. I think it's more convenient, obviously, and a lot of individuals are just more comfortable, I think, doing that in a, in a remote setting versus traveling to and going to a kind of in-person session. So I think one, the demand for it will grow into and it's the fact that we've got technologies now and, and practices and businesses that have been set up to accommodate those needs, will, similar to what we're seeing in terms of basic kind of primary care virtual health setting. Let's shift the other half of our focus in the article and in this House Calls podcast on data and the potential for data interoperability, data curation, data storage, uh, to find much more signal in these massive amounts of data that we're collecting and then apply it much more effectively. And COVID has given an opportunity for a lot of companies to think in new and different ways about data because there's some pretty important questions to answer, ask and answer, like, where's it going to go? How big is it going to get? How many people ICU beds are we going to need? So one of the companies that we profiled in our article is Carrot Health, which um, has developed a, a COVID impact risk predictor, and it blends demographic data like age, whether you're male or female, and whether or not you're a smoker, with disease-specific information. And it's kind of scary when we talk to, to Carrot. Uh, they can get so much information from socially available or from um, commercially available sources uh, that they have individual profiles on every single person in America, including you and me. Yeah, it's like 250 million adults and 5,000 variables. It's uh, pretty stunning the amount of data they've been able to collect and kind of centralize. Their real business is primarily working with payers, uh, but some providers as well to identify which patients are most at risk for an acute episode based on this combination of demographic and social factors. And uh, they've gotten pretty good at it. And so it's now applying that fairly well-developed concept to COVID and being able to say which areas were at greater risk for a COVID outbreak based on this mix of factors. And then even going to the next stage um, and looking at ICU bed capacity relative to you know, risk factors and pointing out areas that may be in, um, at greater risk of, of having their capacity overwhelmed and they're able to do this at a county level. Um, but maybe you could just talk a little bit about uh, the ability that we're now seeing uh, to develop within these really sophisticated tech companies. And it's not just the Googles of the world, it's, it's a whole host of, of companies out there. Their, their ability to collect, curate, and apply data uh, in, in ways that deliver real insight, get data to the frontline people when they need it in the form they need it can be a nudge when it has to be, isolates the signal and so on. Anyway, just give us, give us your sort of take on that. And I know this is a sector you know well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Carrot's platform, obviously, there and and other companies that are offering similar solutions. Um, you know, a couple of of things that are in tremendous need right now. One, they're helping both you know, payers, as you mentioned, and 
Health systems drive growth by identifying and targeting the needs of the consumers of the population in the relevant geographies. So the, the, the value prop of these sorts of businesses is pretty extraordinary. I think it, it's the broader kind of social determinants of health, which has obviously been an area of great interest on the part of, you know, payers and health systems, but also the investment community um, who see that as a real, you know, potential game changer and a way to kind of utilize data in, in new and different ways. Yeah, I think healthcare broadly as it relates to data, we haven't hit a problem. You know, we generate a tremendous amount of data, probably more than we ever have with its claims data, clinical data, um, you know, social determinants of health data, but it isn't gathered or collected or shared in any sort of a robust way. And I think the social factors play a huge role in, in outcomes and health plans and providers often don't have access to this type of data. So there's just a tremendous disconnect as far as getting access to and then being able to apply different sorts of predictive tools and analytics to, to optimize optimize care. There's a couple of recent announcements that caught my eye just even this week. You know, HCA and Google announced a national response portal, which is an open data platform which runs on Google Cloud, as you can imagine, and it promotes data sharing about COVID-19 and how it's spreading. Um, and obviously this is an effort to allow hospitals and communities to better prepare and respond. It's updated daily across the U.S. And, and I also saw something this week where AWS um, announced that it's making available COVID-19 data set, which is kind of a centralized repository of data and other information regarding the kind of spread of the of the virus. And a lot of the big tech, tech companies are offering up um, data assets that they've been able to collect, and in some cases partnering with, with large healthcare organizations to allow all of us to benefit since we're all kind of fighting yeah, this, this virus in a, in a significant way. Yeah, oh, boy, there was so much uh, in there to, to unpack. The one area I want to kind of hone in on is is sort of that, that idea of a national uh, repository of claims and clinical data. And we've had, uh, as you know, a, a real problem getting access to patient data at the record level to companies that uh, can really develop innovative apps and, and apply it in the ONC and, and CMS pushing or finalizing the rules for data sharing and, and data access for patients. Uh, but I mean, it just if, if you could just let your, your brain um, kind of go free for a moment and imagine how different this crisis might be if we had this type of national registry of source uh, patient data protected, um, but standardized and accessible so that we could mine it for um, much more. I mean, imagine how much better the carrot uh, model might be, for example. So and we just maybe maybe go a little deeper on, on that. Yeah, data assets are kind of prized possessions of a lot of large healthcare systems, whether it's the United Health or any of the large payers that are obviously protective of, of their data and their ability to, to do things um, with their populations that are unique. It gives them, I think, in some sense, a competitive advantage or unique capability that maybe they're not quite ready to share, or you take some of the EMR players and Epic and Cerner who are sitting on extraordinary amounts of, of, of obviously patient data or the, or the PBM. And it, I don't know how we ultimately kind of break down those barriers and get organizations like that comfortable to share something that now they feel gives them kind of a unique advantage or it would give others um, a, a different advantage if they were to kind of share it. So it's, I think it's still a ways, a ways out before we actually, before people open up uh, their repositories and we centralize all of that data in a way to, to benefit the broader population. Do you think it happens naturally like it did in the device industry or it's um, 
it's enforced by the the government, uh, which is kind of where these new rules are going. Yeah, you know, I'd like to see it happen naturally. But yeah. I don't know if that is likely. Yeah. I suspect there'll be some intervention on the part of uh, the regulators, kind of nudge that along. Um, but I, I think everybody universally acknowledges the benefits of doing so. So hopefully, we'll we'll get there. Yeah, the, it's kind of the simple way I look at it is the everybody should have access to source patient data the way companies choose to organize it and so on shouldn't be proprietary. It's just source patient data should be available. You ought to be able to uh, put the feeds in there to get the information drawn out. Well, importantly, I think at the end of the day, we all should have our ownership of our own data, right? And it's still, right. A, right. It's still a struggle after all these years for all of us to have a, a medical record that captures our medical history. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's efforts to do that. Um, but I think we all struggle as we, anybody interfaces with the healthcare system is still siloed and difficult on a, on a good day. Yeah. And heaven forbid you actually try to go from one system to another system that has a different EHR. Yeah. If we had all of the source data available, then any insights that companies can glean from it could be commercialized, right? Yeah. If, if you figure out a new way to diagnose something or, or whatever based on data, you know, that's Capitalism is, that's what capitalism does, but we got to create the level playing field so that America's innovation engine really can, can come to the fore. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the clients that I work with are, you know, selling into either payers or, you know, large health systems and they're as part of their product or solution are trafficking in massive amounts of data. Some have enough scale where they can start to develop, you know, analytics, benchmarking, Etc. and commercialize that data on a de-identified basis. But it takes significant scale for that data to become meaningful. So I think that's still the challenge. Even a lot of companies who, who do have access to some of that data, they take a minimum amount of scale and diversity in that data set for it to really be a really robust platform for doing analytics. Yeah, well, and, and we know that a lot of AI is a pretty blunt force instrument, right, too, because it's all it is is correlation. So unless you got massive data uh -huh. sets and unless you can uh -huh. narrowly focus them on to solve real problems, yep. you can end up with some weird stuff. Right. Let's push beyond COVID a little bit and let's assume we're, we're out of it and um, back to some level of, of normalcy in the, the next, you know, four, six, nine months, something like that. What happens then? Which, um, which technologies... Um, the genie can't get put back in the bottle. Um, and what what does the health system begin to look like now that we've had this kind of shock to the system of, of the pandemic and our, our response to it? Yeah, well, I agree. You, you, uh, hopefully we won't go backwards. Um, I think it'll be very different. I think in a good way, health healthcare providers, systems payers will be more efficient um, than they used to be. There'll be a much greater recognition for the value that technology and data can bring to the overall system. So I do think, again, we'll be kind of in a very fundamentally different place with regard to the level of adoption, the comfort on the part of both the consumer, the patient, and the provider in relying upon some of these remote technologies. I'm, I'm hopeful that healthcare will begin to look more like the banking industry and that it can be accessible from anywhere. It doesn't have to be something that you get in a hospital or a clinic or in some other remote location. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of lessons that have been learned in a, in a very difficult situation, um, but I think we'll, you know, hopefully financially it will take some time, I think, for a lot of the younger technology and startups to kind of get back on their feet, um, as well as a number of these provider groups that have seen their uh, visits um, drop dramatically, um, you know, 
and as a result, these organizations are in a very difficult position financially. But I do think collectively as an industry, you know, people will emerge, you know, stronger, smarter, and, um, you know, with a much greater level of dependency on, on technology. Yeah. Amen to that. So anyway, let's wrap up with, with one last question, which will involve a bold prediction. Mm-hmm. So it's a year from now, and we've just finished up our summary of the HIMSS conference. It's a, and, it's a HIMSS, right. <laughs> right, right, right. And we've been blown away by whatever. So what's your bold prediction, of, you know, a year from now that those in the healthcare tech world will be focused on and, um, and uh, really gushing about? You know, I do think you know, healthcare at home, this concept of being able to get healthcare kind of on demand at the location of choice. So I think in technology, it obviously enables that. Mm-hmm. So I do think whether it's with regard to virtual health, I think payments will become more automated so people can interface with their health plans or their employers with regard to their, their financial um, transactions around healthcare. That'll become more of a PayPal type experience. So I do think there'll be a you know, much higher level of adoption and acceptance of of some of these newer technologies that have been more central to, to other industries that have adopted them. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're at a, a really interesting moment of potential convergence, uh, like we were in 2007 when the smartphone came out. And I hope that's what we're talking about in a year is, uh, is uh, how the convergence of new technologies are going to make it easier to build healthcare around individual needs and, and solve individual problems. And um, also hopefully cut down on how concentrated chronic diseases and lower income populations, because one of the things that COVID is doing in its own merciless way is uh, really attacking people with chronic conditions and uh, the disparities are shocking. How over time, to the extent that virtual care and, and data and tech generally can uh, create better, more equitable healthcare delivery that's accessible and, and uh, affordable, you know, amen to that too. So, Jill, as always, this has just been a blast as we go out into the health tech uh, universe and sort of see what's going on. And, of course, we have the added dimension this time of, of doing it within our first pandemic crisis in over a century. So thanks again. This was this was fun. For those of you who haven't read the article, make sure you see it. It's terrific. And Jill's insights on, in the, what we've put together are, are well worth the time uh, reading it. So, Jill, thanks again. Stay safe. You bet. Thanks, Dave.